Okay, uh, <clears throat> world's shortest message from me coming up. I shouldn't say things like that, but my dad's shaking his head like, you should know better by now. All right. No, seriously, though, really, for real this time. <laughs> um, today, uh, really quickly, next week we have a baptism. And um, if you've not been baptized before, I want to challenge you. We're going to touch a little bit on baptism today, but as I was prepping for today to teach a bit on baptism, I was reminded of a scripture in Hebrews. And I'm not going to start there. I'm going to start with Paul's uh, sort of one of his explanations of what's happening in baptism. As we get set for next week, baptism is one of two sacraments that Jesus has instructed the church to continue. Communion is one and baptism is the other one that Jesus has commanded us to continue on. There's other sacraments, but these are two that come from Jesus. And so we are baptizing a few people next week. Paul describes baptism this way in Romans 6. If you have a Bible, you can get it out. Romans 6, 1 to 4. Well then, this is Paul speaking, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? There's some in the church in North America, especially, who say, yeah, you can do whatever you want. Paul would beg to differ. Of course not, he says, verse two, since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may also live new lives. Paul is now drawing on the death and resurrection of Christ as an illustration for baptism. I'm gonna read to you a quote and some of you may think it's heretical at first glance. I kind of did uh, at first. But this, this has been a powerful, uh, instructive thing for me in the last few years. Here's the quote. And this relates exactly to what Paul is saying. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we don't have to. He died on the cross so that we could join him. I want to read that again. Jesus did not die on the cross so that we don't have to. He died on the cross so that we would join him. There is a prevailing kind of idea in parts of the Christian world that would suggest that because Jesus died for our sins, which he did, Jesus accomplished what we cannot accomplish on our own, there is a prevailing idea that since Jesus did it, we can avoid dying to ourselves. That since Jesus suffered and died, what he wants for us is to avoid suffering, to avoid dying to ourselves. And I think nothing could be further from the truth. 
But to understand what Paul is saying in Romans 6, we need to back up a little bit. See, the foundation of God's vision for your life and for my life is to be formed or conformed, to be formed into the image of Jesus. That's the foundational uh, layer of his vision for your life is to be formed into the image of Jesus. Jesus was the image of God, fully human, fully God. Jesus expressed what it means to be truly human, to be truly human in, in, in its fullest sense. And the vision God has for you is that your life would be shaped and formed to be more like Jesus, to be an image of his as you grow. That's the very basic foundation. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 29. God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Second Corinthians 3, and the Lord who is spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. You know, at the beginning of Genesis, it says that God made humanity in his image. We were made in the image of God. We are image bearers on the earth of God's. But then when you know, Satan enters the scene and man rebels against God. That image was marred. That image was distorted. That image was twisted. That image became broken. That image became less than everything God intended for you and I. That image led to death and to dysfunction. That image that then comes from the kingdom of darkness began to pervade on the earth, snuffing out, you know, the image of God. And then God sends his son, Jesus, to come, to die as a ransom for us, to be the propitiation for our sin. He comes and he gives his life freely and willingly, dies for us and reclaims that image reclaims our ability to walk in unity with God to actually express the very heart of God through our lives. Jesus came and he brought the kingdom of God down again and restored God's calling on our lives, which was and is to rule and reign with him on the earth. His invitation to you and to me through your unique giftings, through your unique temperament, your wiring, is to carry his kingdom on the earth and express the very heart of God to those around you. That's his vision for you. And he wants to use the things that you love, the things that you uh, cause you to come alive. He wants to use the passions you have, the gifting you have. He wants to use kind of the way that you're wired to express the fullness of the reality of his kingdom and bring to life again that which is dead around you. This is what Jesus came to do and he did it. But the means through which Jesus did it become the means through which we walk with him. We're not gonna understand baptism, what we're engaging in next week if we don't understand the foundational call and invitation of Jesus. Because what we read from Paul seems weird. What do you mean I'm 
joining him in his death. What do you mean I'm dying, I'm being crucified, and I'm being, what are you talking about? Unless we come back to the foundations, we're not gonna understand what baptism is really all about. So what are the foundations? Number one, the call of Jesus, and this is all over the place. This was repeated by the apostles in the book of Acts and throughout scripture. Matthew 4, 17. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's the call of Jesus. It was the call to those he was speaking to in person, and it's his call to us. Repent and turn to God. If you're not aware, just a quick summary. Repent means to change your mind, to change your thinking, to change how you think about things. It means to turn direction. It means going from one way of thinking about life, one way of thinking about your future, one way of thinking about your identity, one way of thinking about what success is, one way of thinking of, you know, fill in the blank, to then shifting and saying, God, I, I, I'm no longer driven by this paradigm of thought. I'm driven now. I want to follow you. I want to reorient myself under your leadership. Repent. It's changing your assessment. Maybe that's a different word. To repent is to change your assessment, number one, of what's most important. To repent means, God, I'm changing my assessment here. I'm going through my pros and cons. Like, who are the list people here who make, like, yes and no lists, right? And you just put your hand up. It's okay. We're not going to shame you. It's brilliant. I'm not one of those. I'm all over the place. But sometimes we make these lists, and repentance is changing our assessment about what's most important. Repentance is changing our assessment of our priorities. What, what occupies my time and my energy and my strength? Repentance is changing our assessment about who or what receives our attention. And if you were with us in Revelation, attention is worship. Did you know that? What you give your attention to is what you are worshiping. Just think about that for a minute. <laughs> That's super convicting for me. Jesus, what, like, just, just think of this last week. There's no condemnation here. What did you give your most attention to? That's the thing that dominates the values in the important places of your life. Jesus is saying repentance is changing your assessment of what you give your attention to. Repentance is not crying at the front and saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's not repentance. We, sh we can be sorry and th that's good. But repentance is saying, I'm not going down that road anymore. I, I don't, I'm not valuing the things that I used to invest all of my energy and time into anymore. I'm not walking a different way. So it's good to be remorseful, it's good to say you're sorry, but repentance is not having an emotional experience at the altar. Repentance is getting up and saying, tomorrow, God, my face is set on you and not on all this other stuff that's been occupying my life and my time. So Jesus' first invitation was to repent and turn to God. Another way to say turn to God would be 
echoed in Jesus' call, come and follow me. You notice how when Jesus spoke to those that were around him, the disciples, he didn't say, come believe in me, come agree with me. Those are good things, we need to do those. But his call was, come follow me. Walk where I walk. Live the way I live. Value what I value. Spend your life the way I spend mine. Come and follow me. This is the most basic foundational reality of the kingdom of God is Jesus' call for us to repent and turn to God in our life and to follow him. Matthew 4, one day Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they were fishing. Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. Following Jesus, I think by definition, must require a shift from just good intention to now practice, to now movement. Like in my body, in my life, things are changing. In my uh, home and in the environments that I am, things are beginning to change. I'm not just uh, carrying good intention about what I want to see happen in my life. I'm beginning to take that intention and, and work it out through these different areas of my life. What did Jesus say in Luke 18 to the rich young ruler? He approached Jesus and he said, look, I'm, I'm doing this, 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 and this. And Jesus said, there's still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then, Come follow me. So the foundational invitation of Jesus is to follow him. But what are we following him into? And this is where we get stuff kind of confused sometimes. And this is where we hear competing messages. Because if you were to listen to some people, especially let's speak for the Western kind of Christian complex that we're all a part of. If, if you speak to some people, the invitation of Jesus is to be blessed by him. The invitation of Jesus is to have all of your wants fulfilled. The invitation of Jesus is to receive everything that your heart has its mind set on from him. But Jesus says, come follow me. What does it mean? for us to follow him. The writer of Hebrews chapter six gives us a starting point, And this is why we've called this foundations. Hebrews six, let's stop going over the basic teachings or the foundational teachings about Christ again and again. Let's go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. He's echoing there Jesus' call, repent and turn to God. He's saying this is like, this is at the, the, the bottom of the foundation here is your understanding of what it means to repent from evil deeds and turn to God. And then he goes on. 
You don't need further instruction about baptisms, plural. We'll talk about that. So before we can get to baptism, we need to back the bus up and go, whoa, wait a minute. Do you understand the invitation of Jesus in your life? Do you understand what he meant when he said, come follow me? What does that look like? Do you understand what he meant when he said, repent and turn to God? So repentance from evil deeds or dead works, maybe your translation says, and placing our faith in God is a foundational beginning. So the question is then, how do we repent and turn to God? If that's the, the bottom of the foundation, I think Jesus gives us an answer, Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, if you try to grasp for your vision for your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? So repentance then is turning to God and entrusting those things in our life that are most important to us into his hands. It requires, following Jesus requires that you die. It's what Paul said in Romans 6, when we're baptized, we die with him. The invitation of Jesus to follow me requires that you and your flesh and yourself die. You could, Paul talks about it a ton. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. There's verse after verse. The invitation of Jesus to follow me is an invitation to die. And what is it a death of? It's a death to self. Paul says it this way, Galatians 5, 24. Those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to the cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our life. To follow Jesus is to entrust into his care the deepest desires and passions of our life and say, Jesus, my, my identity is not to serve my desires. My identity is not to push forward these passions that I have, these desires that I have. My identity is to lay them down and allow you to kill them. See, if we just stop there, that's really depressing, right? Like, <laughs> all right, let's go to Swish LA and have lunch. And, you know, that's not... When Jesus invites us to die to ourself, the invitation is to exchange what you think is the full life, 
what you think is the thing that brings you most purpose and meaning and joy and pleasure. It's to exchange your perception of what the good life is for his and trust him. This was the invitation for me and for Rochelle in coming here, whatever, five and a half years ago. I literally said to Jesus, I will die if you ask me to pastor a church. I, that's the last thing I wanna do. I don't wanna preach every weekend. I don't wanna, I, I, that, how in the world, God, I literally said this, how in the world can that bring fulfillment and joy to me? And yet, as I've allowed my perception of what the good, blessed life is, to be crucified by Christ, I have experienced more fulfillment and joy in that dying and in the brokenness and suffering of letting go of my own vision for life, my own vision for like meaningful, purposeful, you know, whatever, as I've allowed that to be crucified with Christ, he has met me in more profound ways. I am filled with more fulfillment and joy today in connecting with you every week than I could have ever imagined. And it was because I allowed him to take that scalpel out and say, Andrew, your definition of joy and life and meaning and purpose needs some surgery. Are you willing to let that go? The apostle John says it this way, don't love this world or the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. If your whole life is consumed by the pursuit of your own pleasure, if your whole life is consumed by the things that you see and the things you want to attain and what you want to have, what you want to build, what you want to become, if your whole life is driven by that, then you don't have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see and the pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. The foundational call of your life and my life is to repent, to change our assessment of what is most important. To change our assessment of who's driving the bus. Is it self or is it Jesus? The foundational call of our lives is to repent and turn to God, to entrust into his care the things that we hold most dearly, to entrust into his care the provision you need for the future, to entrust into his care your kids, your dreams, the vision you have for your life. The foundational invitation of Jesus is to follow him in dying to self. You see, dying to self, what it does is it displaces us as the center of the universe and invites Jesus into that place. And this is hard for us. We are driven in our culture by narcissism. We are. And our churches are driven by narcissistic pastors. They are. They are. 
I'm sorry to say, because we elevate self. We elevate gifting. We elevate energy and passion. We elevate size. We elevate, you know, uh, budget sizes and church sizes and the ministries that we listen to are the ones that have the most influence. And we elevate the things that the world values and we place self at the center. Dying to self is the displacement of what we want. Dying to self is the displacement of your desire and your plans and your vision and your needs and your identity your values, and your judgments. So why is that so hard? I'm going to get Liz to come up. Why is it so hard for us to do that? Listen, we're not going to understand next week until we get this. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 to 2, we've talked about this a gazillion times, that we're being formed and influenced by three main things. The world, the flesh, our own, what we just want, and the devil, the unholy spiritual realm, which is real. Those three things are warring against you and I and our ability to surrender self to Jesus. I've been praying about this a lot. This is, I I just wanna leave you with this. I have no magic tricks here at the end. I've spent so much time as I've wrestled like you have through the last few years, as I wrestle with life and all of the things that you wrestle with. I've spent so much time asking Jesus, what is the root, like, what is, what is driving this? This stuff that we can't even see because we're, we're breathing in the atmosphere of our culture. We breathe in the atmosphere of the prevailing sort of ideas of the world around us. We breathe in the atmosphere of brokenness and dysfunction and sin and evil and all of that stuff. And so sometimes it's hard for us to know anything else. And I've been just asking Jesus, what is like in part at least, what is driving this? And I feel like I wanna present this to you with humility, but one of the greatest spiritual influences that is at work to undermine plans and purposes of God for you, your ability to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus, one of the spirits of our age is self. Self glorification, self sufficiency. I don't need anyone. I don't need anything. I'm set and I've done it all for myself. I've provided for my needs. I don't need anyone. I'm strong. I can stand on my own. I don't need help from you or anyone else. Self-pleasure. I provide myself 
through my body the joy that I want or need. I don't need to go anywhere else for it. Self-actualization, selfishness, self-gratification, self-preservation, self-interest, self-promotion, self-love, independence. I couldn't find a self to go with that one. <laughs> Here's what I think this spirit of our age, and there's more, but this, these are some of the things I feel like he whispers to us. Just very quietly, very nonchalantly in the background. This spirit of our age, which is driving so much of our lives in the church. This spirit of the age says to you and I, God is most interested in you being blessed and happy. What this spirit says to us is that God would never violate your happiness. God would never do something in your life, ever. He would never do something in your life that either violates your happiness or undermines what you define as blessing. That's what this spirit whispers to us. So we oppose in our life anything that comes with pain or trouble because this spirit is saying, no, 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 God would never want you to experience hardship or suffering. You gotta pray that away. You gotta find a way around it. You gotta pick up yourself from your bootstraps and make your own way. I think this spirit also whispers to us, God would never violate what you want or desire. I'm gonna just say this super gently the invitation of Jesus to follow him, to pick up our cross and deny ourselves includes every sphere of our life. That invitation includes our human sexuality. What you desire sexually is a part of that. And yet this spirit of the age right now that's coming through the airwaves on like ev from every side is saying God would never violate what you want. God would never violate what you desire. He would never ask you to deny yourself what you really desire or who you really believe you are, or what you really want. And this is found in the stories of unfaithfulness of pastors who tell the people that they pray on that God wants what's happening. It's, it's everywhere. And yet the invitation of Jesus is come and die, come and lay your life down. That includes all of it. We don't get to pick and choose which parts of our life are subject to that calling of Jesus. And yet this the spirit of this age is saying, no, no, no. God would never ask you to do that. Really? Anytime we're tempted in our own thinking, in our own processing, anytime we're tempted to believe that God would never violate what we want in any given situation, we need to stop because that's not the spirit of God speaking. Another thing 
that this spiritual influence says to us. And this is in the church. God came to serve me and my needs first. Meaning, God, what I need and want in my life right now must be your top priority. And we see this in parts of the church. We see this in kind of the the far extremes of sort of the name it and claim it movement. Like I'll, I'll just lay my hand on this Mercedes because God, you would want to give it to me. Maybe he does. He does amazing things like that. He certainly does. But God's greatest priority isn't to give us what we want. And yet we're told, even in the church, that God is here to serve our needs. Any time that you're tempted to believe, if you're confronted in a situation and you're, you're tempted to believe that God could not possibly act in any way that would violate what you want, you need to stop and question, Jesus, is this consistent with your call for me to lay down my life? Is this consistent for your call for me to walk through suffering with you and pain? Is this consistent with what you've invited me to do in denying myself? See, even in the church in the West, we believe that God exists to serve us and he does serve us in his goodness. He, he does. But God does not exist to serve you or me. He does it out of his goodness and his faithfulness. God exists to receive glory for himself. He exists to invite us into walking with him on the earth and expressing his kingdom. Another thing that this spirit of this age, I think, whispers to us, God would never invite me to suffer. If you hear somebody preaching a gospel of the absence of suffering, you're not hearing the words or the gospel that came from the mouth of Jesus. Sometimes the greatest purpose of Jesus in a moment is for us to sit with him in suffering, in pain and say, Jesus, I'm not gonna find a way around this. I'm not gonna just push this to the side. I'm gonna experience the fullness and I'm inviting you to teach me through this. You know, I heard this summer in a book that I read, this amazing perspective that I've never heard from Psalm 23. You know, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you're with me. This author pointed out, and I've never thought of this. What we wanna do is live on the mountaintop, right? We wanna live there. But if you've ever climbed a mountain, I've climbed a few. If you've ever climbed a mountain, you'll know there's no life on the top of a mountain. The life cannot be sustained on the top of a mountain. It's inhospitable. Do you know where life is? It's in the valley. Life is found in the valley. The greatest gifts of God, the, the greatest fruit of the kingdom is found as you walk through the valley with Jesus, not around it. And so our temptation to live on the mountaintop is a false one. There's no life there, but there's life 
if we allow Jesus through pain and through suffering to work in us. We don't like to hear that. I have so many more. But these dead works, the very first foundational principle of following Jesus, repent from dead works, according to Hebrews 6. These dead works are those things that promote self. These things that promote your own self-interest, self-preservation, self-sufficiency, self-pleasure, all of those things, they're dead. And Jesus is saying, would you give those to me? Would you allow me to crucify those in your life so that you can experience real life, life to the fullest? So if we're gonna understand baptism next week and what it means to be buried with Christ, we have to be willing to follow him. We have to be willing to follow him and his invitation is to follow me and die. Not because he's like some sadistic, morbid guy, but because he knows what you don't. And that real life, real authority, real power, real kingdom stuff lies on the other side of death and dying to yourself. Why don't you stand with me? we need to recognize and to be able to discern are these influences from the flesh, the world, and the devil that want to kill and destroy us. We need to be able to pick out what's false and what's real. And that beginning place, I think, is in laying down self. And so I just want to invite you to pray with me as we close here today and if you if you mean it I want to just invite you to pray with me quietly Jesus we just and you can just say Jesus I submit to you today again could say, Holy Spirit, I invite you to bring conviction to my life in the areas where self is Lord and not Jesus. You could pray it this way, Jesus, I ask that you show me in my life what it means to follow you and where I need to die to self. And I just ask Holy Spirit, as people are praying that, that you would bring very specific, a word or a picture or a circumstance to mind. You don't bring condemnation. You don't speak in generalized kind of blanket statements. I ask Holy Spirit across this room that you would bring revelation to areas that each of us are carrying where we are, uh, we are worshiping and idolizing self.
and not allowing Jesus to be Lord. We want to learn, Jesus, what it means to follow you in your way of life. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just breathe uh, just a fresh wind of revelation to each person here. Not condemnation, but just revelation, conviction. In our lives, Jesus, where are the areas that you're inviting us to lay things down, surrender them to you? We just declare that we need you, Jesus, and our desire is to follow you. Our desire is to be willing to die to the need for ourself to govern all of life. Holy Spirit, just continue your work in us.